0: So Joe, can you like uh, re- introduce yourself?
1: Yep. So my name is Joseph Hallock. I'm currently a physical therapist with the Toronto Blue Jays. I have a wife, Lene, and then a two-year-old son, Knox. We have another on the way due this October. Professionally speaking, coming up on my first full year at the Blue Jays, prior to that, I was with Ohio State doing an upper extremity fellowship associated with the Cleveland Guardians. I completed my sports physical therapy residency at the university of north dakota work with primarily football and hockey and i did my pt school at the university of Maryland, bismarck north dakota so sort of in the pt world family world that's so that's uh some details about me
0: nice nice so between football hockey and baseball which mm-hmm. one do you enjoy the most
1: i definitely enjoy baseball and that's what brought me to want to work with the blue Jays and hopefully work in baseball for a very long time. Got to play baseball growing up and throughout college. So that's where a lot of my passions lie.
0: Nice, nice, nice. So, um, since I'm from Taiwan, although I'm Louisville right now, but there's a lot of like Taiwanese player go to like a major league or a lot of like, uh, Asian pitcher go to major league. Mm -hmm. And after they go to major league, they're, they're going to go through like Tommy and John surgery. So can you walk us through uh, the first place? What happened with these players? So, or not just about agent pitchers, what happened to, what happens to like pitchers? So they need to go through these, this surgery.
1: Yeah. So Tommy John, very prevalent, especially in baseball across all levels across the world. so at the the simplest form, Tommy John surgery, the anatomy of it, involves your ulnar collateral ligament in your elbow, which I can adjust this little, just because big visual person. So ulnar collateral ligament goes from distal humerus, kind of proximal ulnar right in here. And you have three bands of it, which I think a lot of people think ligament, just one, and you got an anterior, a posterior, and a transverse band, um, sort of going in there to take a lot of stress when we're going into external rotation when we're doing that. And the one that we're particularly concerned with this kind of that anterior bundle Um, people can kind of have damage and such but if that anterior one goes that's when we're kind of going to be in a tricky spot and so anatomically speaking that's what we're thinking of when we're thinking of kind of Tommy John surgery's damage to that UCL ligament and the reason it's particularly as prevalent in baseball is its highest amount of stress is in this external rotation position so you're thinking of a pitcher pitchers develop increase extra rotation over time. And so as they go into that layback, that ligament's going to get challenged. It's going to get asked to do some things at a very high level. And then as we come forward to release the ball, that's when things, if they do go wrong, can kind of get a little fuzzy. So that's where if there's damage with that ligament coming here, not providing stability, not provide what it needs to, then we may need to warrant a Tommy John surgery.
0: Nice. So, um, I know I know this is probably going to be hard, but like is there a way for like a practitioner like coaches or like physical therapists to help like our player to get stronger at that position or get stronger for that ligament?
1: Yes. and so as you said, there's no perfect sign to it. It is very hard. If I could figure it out, I'd be a very wealthy man in baseball but we can definitely help. And so through that is, if you look at, again, the anatomy of the UCL and you look at the forearm flexor muscles that run with it, there's a lot of muscles that can provide stability to that joint. And so we can help the athlete physically get stronger in all different ways, more than just concentric training. but eccentrically, they need to provide some breaks with that wrist. And they also need to, using isometric holds, we need to be very stable you think about throughout that throwing motion. So on a strength training side, we can do that. We can also make sure that there's necessary ranges of motion. That's something that over time, pitchers tend to lose in that elbow, whether it's flexion or extension, it can kind of vary. So whether it's different types of soft tissue work, mobility work, finding something that works best for that athlete so that we can maintain their range of motion. And that bigger picture, there's good research and data to show that Shoulder range of motion plays a role. Cervical range of motion plays a role. Hip range of motion, thoracic range of motion. You look at the whole body, the whole kind of kinetic chain all plays a role in this. And so is PT is not just looking at the elbow, but looking at everything, making sure that, all right, what's kind of their baseline shoulder range of motion? Are they, do they not have enough? Do they have too much? Do we need more stability? Do we need more strength? Do we need more mobility? Sort of going through, like it needs analysis on your athlete of like, all right, where are they right now? How can we make that move as efficiently, as effectively as possible? And all of this can kind of save on that ligament. And then the crappy part is, is even when you get it all perfect, some guys still get hurt and kind of blow out. So we're we're playing an imperfect game and we're just trying to kind of do the best we can with that.
0: Yeah, man. Yeah. Is this surgery is like, like, is this surgery is Shohei Otani going to go through? Or am I remembering that wrong?
1: So Shohei Itani, yeah, he does, or he has been diagnosed with the UCL tear. To what degree? I guess I don't know the knowledge of, and it's something that you'd, yeah. So initially before I worked in baseball, it's like, oh, you tear UCL, need surgery immediately. There's a lot more options than necessarily straight to surgery. And I'm not speculating that he's going to do this or not, but there's like a full reconstruction, which is going to take longer. There's UCL repairs, which are going to be shorter there's different types of injections and not that you're going to get the ligament necessarily like to grow back or heal itself, but you might be able to make the joint stable or a bit more calm down to where maybe he could pitch in shorter bouts. I'm sure the angels are looking into a, <laughs> every single option and uh, kind of weigh in that. So yeah, it's just uh, just cause someone I guess like tore their UCL or has a tear doesn't necessarily mean that they're immediately going in to get surgery.
0: Um, there's a, a lot of different things you can look at. Nice, nice. So uh, going from what caused it or what are the main reason you get injured, I want to like ask, like after they've gone through the surgery or after they've gone through the injury, uh, still, what are the things as practitioner we can help them go back to um, go back to like able to throw the ball i know that you probably already answered that through like a uh, shen training stabilization th- these kind of stuff but still
1: yeah no it, it, with throws and with the surgery there's pretty good timelines just because there's so many ucls done and there's some really damn good pts that have walked through it and kept track of what they've done and you start to sort of see some relative timelines that Again, they're set in stone, but they're good guidelines just to respect anatomy and healing. But as with any surgery early on, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get rid of inflammation and swelling. You're trying to calm down the joint and you're trying to get it moving. We're trying to restore range of motion. So I feel like those sort of cornerstones don't really change, even though it's like, oh, it's Tommy John. What do I do? Well, same thing as you had a knee. Let's get this thing to calm down. Let's get our patient to be in a good spot and start to just get comfortable moving it again. And trying to restore his daily activity, reaching for water, kind of doing things around the house. And then we start to introduce strengthening, whether that's just light isometrics. We start to go mid-range as we get comfortable through mid-range. Maybe we do some light eccentrics, work heavier in there and work through the same kind of process. You work through anywhere in the body where you're starting to build them up, get them used to those normal movements. And with baseball specific and throwing, that's where we start to get into two-handed, one-hand plyometric training where whether we're throwing med balls, rebounding, we're throwing them with more intent, putting you in different positions where we're putting the arm in relative external rotation, starting to challenge the ligament there because we just need to stress it, see how it responds, and then build up that stress over time. So the general kind of progression is you go with a two-hand plyo for two, three, four weeks, depending. Some people are on the two, depending on how they do. Also the training age of the athlete, are you dealing with a guy who's Maybe, is it like a 16-7 child that's pretty young? We're going to work them through this? Or is it someone who's done a lot of plyometrics? they a professional athlete. They've done tons of these. It's not that we're going to skip it, but they may handle these a lot better. And then the same thing when we get to one-handed plyometrics. So now that can go anywhere from a one-handed rebound to all the way where we're doing some more like weighted ball training, where we're throwing, it, throwing them into a wall because even though we're working with a heavier ball, Arm's going to be moving slower. It's going to be a bit tighter. It's not going to be as much external rotation until we work it at like higher speeds. And then once you complete those 2 and one hand plyos, then we'll start to work into throwing. And then from throwing, it goes throwing at higher intensities, whether that's dictated by just throwing at a higher intensity, whether we do a distance, whether we're going with reps, and then into a bullpen phase. And once they can complete bullpen, work into lives, and then eventually game activity
0: nice nice so um like like acl injury because i mainly work with basketball and like um basketball rugby and track so in like these kind of sport they lay they they tear their acl they or they have an acl surgery it probably needs like a year or something a whole year or something to like recovery to get back to court so since it's another ligament is a timeline timeline about the same or if it if they go through the surgery sorry
1: yeah so we're looking at a tommy john reconstruction ligaments tore, we're bringing in whether it's another tendon graft from palmaris longus gracilis hamstring or a cadaver that's probably 11 to 13 months, plus or minus. I mean, some people, there's always going to be outliers who go a little bit faster, and then there's going to be people who go a little bit slower. But usually, return-to-game activity is about that 11 to 13-month range. If it's a UCL repair, where they can keep the native ligament, and they can kind of use like a tape-type deal where they suture it down. I don't want to talk too much about the details. I will probably end up putting my foot in my mouth, but that is a little bit quicker where you're going to see kind of six to eight months and you're seeing that repair across baseball a little bit more where some guys are getting that if they can, because of that, you can, you miss less time. Your career is really valuable. It's only so long. So if you can miss less time, that's huge. So full reconstruction, 11 to 13 months plus or minus a few. And then that repair, same thing probably about six to eight, I wouldn't necessarily say like minus a few, but yeah, six to eight seems to be pretty good with that
0: one. Nice. So um, last question about Tommy Johns. Um, There's a, there's a Asian, there's a Chinese pitcher pitcher. They go, he go through like, he go to like Dodgers for like years ago. And he had to went through multiple times of like Tommy Johns. So if, like let's say if one of the pitcher he already gone through it, um, what are the chances are they gonna go through it again?
1: So yeah, that's an interesting question. That again, there's no definitive answer. But yeah, one of your risk factors for getting Tommy John is previous Tommy John. So, an easy answer is like, oh, you've been hurt before. Well, you might get hurt again. It's it's very hard, I guess, to really tell. Some people, mechanically speaking, just the way they throw, it's going to put a lot of stress to the elbow, which stinks because maybe how they throw is what's got them to that level. Um, So you can try to work with mechanics. You can try to work with that. A lot of that's more on the pitching side, but at the same time, you don't want the athletes to kind of lose who they are. So that it becomes our job to see, all right, what physically can we work on? What needs to be a little bit stronger? What needs to be a little bit more stable? What needs to be a little bit more mobile? So that becomes sort of a, a fun problem solving game Uh, doesn't 100% answer the question. But yeah, I mean, if you've had one before the likelihood of you getting one again, I guess if you stay in baseball long enough, eventually it might kind of rear its ugly head, but hopefully the people around you can figure out something where we either put it off longer. You're able to perform or yeah, we can avoid it.
0: Yeah. Is this like a common issue in baseball? have multiple times like so.
1: so I wouldn't say common um it just depends on like the age of usually like your first one which now you are starting to see people get Tommy John younger so then if you get it when you're 18 to 22 and you're fortunate enough to play till you're like 30 32 you might see it again and so that's where the trend in baseball with people getting this younger yes you're starting to see repeat ones but it doesn't necessarily mean it's like reconstruction, reconstruction might be a repair that all of a sudden, five, six years later, we need to do reconstruction on, or there might've been some intervention in their elbow, whether it was therapeutically injected that down the road, then it's like, all right, now this kind of warrants a full surgery. So due to those reasons, yeah, it's kind of becoming more prevalent. And also just conversations like this are probably happening more. So people are starting to notice things a little bit more.
0: Nice. Nice. So, um. Uh, besides, like the elbow, the other thing I want to discuss is about like also like in baseball. There's common injury in like shoulder. So, um, for also for pitchers, um, what are the like some uh main injury they're gonna go through for like in the shoulder?
1: Yeah. So with with the shoulder, typically you might see whether it's just straight rotator cuff fatigue, posterior impingement, some sort of anti- anterior impingement-like symptoms. Those are, I guess, kind of just the big overarching three. And those has kind of come to really just shoulder health and getting an athlete's shoulder stronger or making sure that they can maintain strength throughout the season. And a lot of it kind of comes back to that cuff being stable, being mobile. A lot of the same concepts that I touched on with rehabbing for Tommy John really play a role in the shoulders because that joint and how much it's got going on with, I mean, what it's got to do in the glenoid with the scap with your T spine. So that's where you can get some, whether it's posterior lateral anterior shoulder symptoms, that might be because your cervical spine is, isn't moving. And so I think the shoulder gets, can get the brunt of a lot of things just due to how many muscles are there and where it's at anatomically. It's like, Oh, he's got anterior shoulder pain. Oh, he's got anterior pain, pain you dive deep into it. You're like, actually his lat is pretty tight where it attaches. It's presenting there. Um, so with the shoulders, I tend to think it's, it's more areas that seem to get affected or seem to be cranky, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, Oh, your posterior shoulder Your shoulder's sore. Oh, nah, it's his cuff. It's like, well, not necessarily the case. Maybe something with the scat, maybe something with his neck, might even be something on the anterior side, jacking up things on the backside. Um, the shoulders, uh, it, it sounds fun talking about it, but it can be tricky, uh, teasing through that and sort of figuring out what's going on.
0: Cool. So I read this on textbook of anatomy, but I know there's probably a like a different answer for this, probably because like a uh, weak lat, some sort of stuff like that, but um. For for the reason why like there's a lot of, like pitcher tore their rotator cuff, is it really because like the rotator cuff isn't strong enough, or like like I would like what I just mentioned, we should probably like strengthen their lat.
1: So, I guess to so is the question kind of more like a rotator cuff tear, what may lead to that, and I think the rotator cuff just gets asked to do so much. With a thrower, that if someone does get a rotator cuff tear, it has a huge eccentric load decelerating the shoulder and follow through. I mean, that's a big job, but then the primary job of the cuff is to keep the humerus just stable. So now you're thinking of the extreme positions that we're putting it in. All of a sudden, we're going way back into external rotation. We're flying into internal rotation. So that rotator cuff's really working extremely hard to just keep that shoulder in its socket with the labrum while also dealing with it's really getting short as we lay back and then it's getting really long, really fast. It's just going to ask to do a ton of different things and a super small amount of time. So with athletes here, it's used not that the rotator cuffs, that's not strong enough because a lot of these guys are really strong. It's that, it's that fatigue piece. It's that efficiency piece. It's a work, it's a acute to chronic workload over time piece. Um, it's definitely multifactorial, but that's where, yeah, your strength training comes in. We need to be really strong eccentrically. We need to be really comfortable getting to some extreme lengths and showing that we not only have strength, but we've got stability, and that we can repeat it so that we have some sort of motor function component where it's not like, oh, I'm going to put you here once and hold it. All right, let's get there. Hold it. All right, let's get there again and hold it. Um, yeah, so that's where the cuff just kind of <laughs> kind of got the, the short straw because it has to do, yeah, a lot of things.
0: Cool. So, um, there's a lot of like, v- um, video online doing like, training the rotator cuff, or like rehabbing the rotator cuff. Um, do you think that that sort of like movement really helps?
1: I would say yes. Usually, the rotator cuff. Is getting worked anytime you're using your shoulder even if you're doing grip and stuff away from your body your cuffs turning on but rotator cuff specific i definitely think there's value in that i think there's value even in doing like eri or at your side are those my favorite exercises no but however for some athletes meeting them where they're at those can be really really helpful so I'm not a big fan of being like, ah, we don't need to do rotator cuff stuff because when you do a deadlift, your rotator cuff is working. So, cause I've had those conversations like, yep, it is working, but there's also some other things that we can do to strengthen it and maybe get some patterns going that would definitely benefit these throwers. So, um, this is short and simple. Like, yes, I think working your cuff is a excellent idea.
0: Nice. Nice. So, uh, um, you also mentioned like the cervical spine uh, thoracic spine and like um, lumbar spine so uh another interesting topic is like like a few months ago I think in Taiwan we have like a lot of people a lot of coaches are discussing about like spine spinal engine theory and how the spine works when they do when they're sprinting when they're throwing a baseball. So can you like walk us through like exactly like um how the spine is going to work when, like, let's say when we do uh, a movement, like throwing a ball or like uh, uh hitting a ball?
1: So, yeah, excellent question. In baseball, there's a lot of asymmetry. So the spine might move a little differently one way versus the other, but I think – when you're thinking like spinal engine theory, it's, it comes down to like how does your body interact, kind of holistically, and it starts like with the ground. And so you look at the spine is very dictated by a lot of look like hip mobility in these athletes. So if a, when a pitcher, when they're moving down the mound, if they're a right-handed pitcher, and that left foot hit contact, their ability yes to be able to rotate with their T spine, but also you look at their extra internal rotation of their hips, their ability to kind of have some hip separation their ability to kind of open up. So that's where we kind of look with some of these athletes because we'll isolate, okay, what's your T-spine mobility, maybe in a quadruped where you can really just look at, oh, you have good T-spine mobility. And then you stand them up and you maybe put them into like a split stance and you try to have them rotate the same way. And all of a sudden the movement can get a little bit wonky. I think that's where leaning on, yes, PT, but working with S&C, there's a lot of programming for baseball with, whether it's split stance, single leg stability, seeing how you move and how your spine can actually move when it's challenged in these extreme positions. And so that that's asking for a lot of stability from the ground up. So with these guys, that's kind of where we go. We'll isolate things. We'll look at T-spine flexion, extension, rotation. We look at there's just lumbar flexion, extension. We look at those pieces and they're good to know in isolation. And then you watch him perform on the field and sort of what are they expressing? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, like he's got good T-spine rotation. And you watch him pitch, shoulder-hip separation maybe isn't that good. It's putting him in these stances. Um, then you kind of try to bring it back and whether it's working. One thing that they've worked a lot more with this year is like water bags, working some stability to challenge that in different positions. It's also going to, you're going to move a little bit slower. So it's a little bit easier to control as opposed to you're moving to throw to baseball. It's kind of going all out. so things are happening at a very high rate of speed. So that's where I guess when I think of like spinal engine theory, not, I guess, formally could, I guess, give a textbook answer to that theory, but that's where my mind goes with it.
0: I love it. I love it. So um, when it comes to like asymmetry in like the thoracic spine, um, I know the answer is, is it depends, but like um, I know the throw is going to, they they have no match throw or like, or like baseball hook going to hit the ball. Their rotation at a certain like direction, right? Some of, some of them going to rotate like from left to right. Some of them are going to rotate the other way. And that, that's probably that That is probably going to affect how, um, their thoracic spine mobility so since there's like huge probably not huge since there's like a symmetry in their like no thoracic spine are you gonna are you gonna probably correct it or like make it a little bit more asymmetry
1: so yeah usually we we get baselines when they come in in spring training just to sort of see where they're at based. We're assuming they're healthy when they're coming to spring training. So it's like, all right, who do you look after full off season of training? We know we're probably going to get a little more asymmetrical as the season goes on, but our job is to maintain whatever your normal range of motion is, as best we can. Personally, if you start to lose a little bit of rotation, I don't get too, I guess, worked up about it, but I do want to make sure that we're, there are some numbers we usually don't want to drop under just internally, but it's more so making sure we have like end range control of whatever we do got. And that we're challenging it a little bit. And so our SNC does an excellent job of programming in rotational base exercises. So guys are getting, again, whether that's in split stance or just isolated turns, they're doing some of that in the weight room, in the training room, usually with pitchers and whatever position guys are filtering through, we usually take them through some sort of T spine activation, T spine mobility. We try to mix that in, even if someone wants a shoulder stretch. I'm probably going to do something thoracic extension and flexion based, with some end range isometrics, maybe some contract relaxes to see. All right, can we go a little bit further? So challenging that each day. Um, that's kind of the the best thing I've found for it personally. I'm sure someone else could come on here and give you a much better answer, but. Just trying to get them to end range a couple times a week on the table, see how that feels. Because in-game, they're going to go to some extreme ranges of motion. They're going to go wherever the sport dictates and takes them. So trying to get them there in a controlled manner, see how it feels. If we need to intervene, if something's feeling tight, then we can go down that treatment route and try to do that.
0: Are you going to do both sides or like just uh, the other side?
1: Typically, I'll do both sides. And once you work with a guy long enough, you start to realize kind of, what. okay, you're a little tighter on this side. Is it manual mobilization, manipulation stuff that helps us maybe get a little more? Is it, again, that contract last but maybe it's kind of more muscular? Okay, let's see if we can't get a little more there. So you can challenge it in just different ways and figure out things that guys like and guys adapt to. Some guys pre-game will do like a T-spine activation, whether that's seated and where we're taking them deep into a range holding or standing doing things or if it's in that quadruped um, we have quite a few guys that will do and yeah though this would come in like All right, i'm doing some t-spine stuff today and so it's nice to kind of work with them that way
0: so is it kind of the same with like hip mobility
1: yeah the same thing where you're going to be working with a guy you might be taking through er ir and on one side you're like oh nice and the other side's like Like, what's going on here? Um, There was a really good study where, what was it? I want to mess up the numbers. There's a very high prevalence of hip impingement in baseball, which is adapted over time. Just due to the rotation, due to, I mean, when you think about a hitter, that back hip is going to some aggressive IR. You can develop some stuff in that pelvis and that acetabulum where it's not quite to the degree of hockey, but there's a high prevalence of fai so then we start to think about stretching and the mechanics i can have just anatomically yeah there's probably gonna be less range of motion one way yeah if you bring them into that favor fader test and kind of crank on it, it might not feel too hot so those are things again that just in pt school i'm like oh no guys got decreased range of motion we got to fix it immediately now working with baseball a little bit more it's Let's maintain the range of motion they got. Let's make sure they can perform on the field. Let's make sure they're feeling good. And if their, their hips a little bit tighter, it's a little bit tighter. There's an element of them that's adapted over time. It's probably good. And there's a personal element where maybe that's just them. So trying not to get too high or low on things um, when it comes to the asymmetry stuff is, has been sort of my best bet and the people that I've worked with who I really value their opinion and have been doing this for a very long time. It's usually how they handle it. So it's, trying
0: to learn from them. Nice. So um is there like like you mentioned, um going out from like uh school, uh there's gonna be a huge like not really huge, but like a lot of like asymmetry or like they have probably like big range of motion on the right side, but not many on the other side. Uh is that gonna be a lot different with like trading or like uh normal normal people
1: yeah i would say general population will not have as extreme of asymmetries as you'll see in professional baseball there's just so many reps especially if a guy's a right-handed hitter right-handed pitcher you're rotating left so many times a day for years where you might see someone who played high school baseball and now they golf and now they're in your clinic, like, oh, my back's kind of sore. You'll probably see some asymmetry there. That would be normal. Um, but you probably wouldn't see it to the level, and it would probably be a bit easier to, I don't want to say correct, but intervene and make a true tangible like, difference, as opposed to someone who now they're, they've got more mud on the tires. They've just done it a lot more, and so their body's adapted. Um, it's going to be not that you – you can't correct it, but you also may not want to.
0: Nice. So working with like, working with baseball and you used to work with like, um, hockey and football, um, like, is that a huge change for you? I mean, hockey and football you probably have like more injury on the lower limb and baseball probably more injury on the upper limb like is it is it a huge change for you or
1: I wouldn't say a huge change I I have grown up again like I said I played baseball in PT school I coached college baseball and it's so always being around it really that a year of residency where I got to work with football and hockey was great for me for that reason is it was a lot of exposure to lower extremity injuries And just seeing that high contact, those acute injuries, how do you handle it? How do you – it's a different type schedule where football, you maybe get a little dinged up on Saturday. Well, now we got a week. Whereas baseball, it's every day. Hockey, you get a couple days unless you're in like a weekend series where it's back-to-back college. So a lot of things, the timing and rehab and decision-making pieces, those are some of the biggest challenges. Um, Being a part of baseball. Well, I've just always really loved it and always been around it. The decision making stuff is always—you're always learning about. Okay, is this guy going to be down for one to two days? Is this like seven to ten days? Is this? That's been the a really big learning piece now being kind of immersed in professional baseball. But yeah, the call the the football and hockey was yeah a lot of exposure to sort of those things and then diving into all right, how can we get this person not only back, but what's a sensible timeline for return to play realistically in the midst of a season, in the midst of their calendar and what they need to do.
0: So like you mentioned before, baseball is like, basically they played every day and you just got like a kid, like two-year-old kid. So how do you manage the time? to spend with like uh the family and how do you manage the work time is it is there a true balance
1: in season i mean you say there's like balance but it's it's not um and that's a that is a just a sacrifice of being in professional sports that i don't think some i know like going back to my pt school and speaking with some people it's every your long, young clinicians are like yeah, I want to be in pro sports. All right, awesome. How many hours a week do you want to work? Eh, 40. It's like, all right, well, triple that. <laughs> um, yeah, the balance, it, in season, it is tough. Like today, Monday, the way the minor league schedule is mapped out, Mondays are off days, but even on of off days, training room's open for a couple hours a day. So still going in and working and then spending the rest of the day with my family. But on a normal game day, if the game's at six or seven, we're probably in the field at noon or one. So, you're at the field from noon until it's a six, seven o'clock game, 11 p.m., and then you're back home. So, you're seeing your family in the morning from eight to noon, and then you're kind of off to work. And so, over the course of a season, yeah, it can get, you can get longer times and you definitely miss your family. But the off season is very nice where you're off, you're off, off. So, you have a couple months where you're just at home. You can wake up, see your family, you put your kids to bed. So, that's that's what I'm at this point. We've got hopefully knock on wood, blue Jays make the playoffs, make a very deep run, play into October, come November, a lot more normal kind of family schedule.
0: Nice, nice. Last thing, okay. So um you go out of PD school and go to like pro setting. So um for those who want to like go to the work at pro setting, no matter it's, like baseball basketball, football, or even hockey. Do you have like any like suggestion for them?
1: Yeah, so I would say if you're in PT school, you got to, I mean, find a way to work with sports. When I was in PT school, I coached college baseball all three years, and I know that helped me a ton just to really understand the team environment It kept me around sports. It kept me working with it. And also when I went to apply for residencies, it looked really good on my resume. Not only just, oh, it looks nice on my resume, but it it was actual valuable experience that I know residencies looked at. And again, they just valued it. They're like, oh, this guy's he had PT school and then he was going out working with athletes daily. So I think if you're in PT school, not that you need to coach, but find something that's going to, sort of put you in the setting that you want to be in, in some way, even if that's working at the youth level. Um, I think that's really important. And then same thing with clinicians. I know where it's maybe you went to PT school, you've worked at a clinic now three, four, five years. I mean, similar, if you can volunteer with local teams. I mean, I'm from North Dakota, so it's not like I'm living in some big area. We're now living in Tampa. It's like, oh, they got the Buccaneers, they got the Lightning, they got the Rays. There's professional sportsmen I in North Dakota. We have an indie ball team. We got to universities. You can still find opportunities, whether it's volunteering, giving your time, because on the front end, that's probably what it's going to take is some time that's maybe not necessarily paid where some hours that aren't necessarily the best. But you that's sort of what it takes to kind of get in to professional sports because there, there is a huge care component. There is a sacrifice component. And then there's also, it's, it's competitive just as a lot of people want to be in it. A lot of people probably want your job. And so to get there, it's probably going to take a little bit more effort than just I'm working eight to five. Why is no one calling me? Well, we kind of need to put in a little bit more, um, just to have those conversations and to sort of get some of that knowledge.
0: Yeah, man. Yeah. So that's kind of like, all the question I have for you today so for those who are interested in what we're talking about today, where can they reach out to you?
1: So, oh gosh, I don't even know my Twitter and Instagram handles. I'm on Instagram. If you could tag me in this video, that would be appreciated. Um, just Joseph Hallock. And then on Twitter, I think it's just JV Hallock. The same thing. Um, my profile pictures are the same, me with my family. So I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. And then... I'm not sure if normally like you have people put their emails on here too, but more than happy to put that on there. So yeah, if people want to reach out, we can talk that way too.
0: Nice. Nice. Nice.